Hello, and welcome to Season 1, Episode 6 of A Viking Story. This is the last episode in this season. My name is Alan Laycock-Fuchs, and you're listening to an accompanying podcast for a novel that I've written, which was set in the Viking Age. This season, I've been looking at various elements from the Viking world that I had to consider when writing my novel, and today's episode is going to look at the Viking world revisited. So I thought it would be neat to sort of bookend the season with a similar episode to how I started it. The very first episode of this season looked at general elements from the Viking world that I had to consider, and there were a few more that I wanted to add on and, and go into for this final episode. Similar to religion, I never actually wanted to write a novel focused on law because I personally don't find law that interesting, and I know that I may be in the minority. I know that maybe you, the listener listening right now, enjoy law, and that's that's fine. There's a lot of shows on TV, Suits, Law & Order, that look at law, so I realize that there's an appeal to it. It's just never really been my cup of tea, but my story necessitated that I, I focused on it based on the locations and the time period where my story is set, and I'm glad that I did because it, it ended up being... Yeah, both entertaining and insightful. So let's start by talking about the courtrooms of their day. And the Vikings had places that they called things. They originated in the Viking homelands, and Icelanders brought the system over to Iceland as well. And for my, for the purposes of my novel, I focus mainly on Iceland. So that's where I'm going to focus uh, on this episode today as well. So Iceland was divided into quarters, and every quarter of Iceland had these things. Sometimes we call them uh, lesser assembly sites or thing sites, but every quarter of Iceland had three of these, apart from the northern quarter which had four, and that's believed to have been due to population density. The thing sites, they served three purposes, so every spring there would be a, th a regional thing in all of these areas, and this is where simple court cases could be adjudicated on. Another function of the regional assemblies were to prepare more complicated cases for the all thing. And that's something I'm going to talk about in just a moment, but basically the all thing was the more prominent uh, courtroom, you could say. The other purpose of the regional things was to report back news from the all thing. So usually that would occur in the fall. So you'd have a spring regional assembly for simple court cases and preparing more complicated courses for the all thing. The all thing would take place in the summer and then in the fall or autumn you would report back news from the all thing. So as I've already sort of started to allude to, the all thing was Europe's first democratic parliament and it doubled as Iceland's supreme court. So this is where ultimate decisions could be made, decisions on a national level, and this was also a place where it wouldn't just attract people from a certain region, it would attract people from all over Iceland. So uh, this would be an opportunity where people would probably meet other Icelanders who they would not have seen since the previous year's All Thing. So it was a real social gathering as much as it was a gathering for, for political purposes. I'm going to read a description of the location of the All Thing. The location is called Thingfetle, and it's not actually from my novel. It's from something I wrote that was a little bit more academic, but I think it gives a better factual description of Thingfetle. Thingfetle's geography is dominated by its visible fault chasm, known as Almanya, 
And the chasm is 8 kilometers long, was created by tectonic plate action below the Earth's surface, formed as the North American and European plates shifted away from each other along the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. Equally aesthetic is Thingfellavatn, which is a large lake that is situated to the south of Thingfetla. Thingfellavatn is the largest freshwater lake in Iceland, spanning 83 kilometers and well over 114 meters deep. Connecting Thingfellavatn to Thingfetla is the Oxarau River, which was diverted for specific use at the Althing. Indeed, the old riverbed of the old Oxarau River can still be seen today. Once diverted, the new river supplied people at the Althing with a fresh supply of running water that ran partway along the fault chasm. Okay, so there you go. There's a little bit of a description of Thingfetla. There are, of course, other elements to the All Thing which are important to discuss. So, unlike the regional things where it would have just attracted a few people from that area, the All Thing was, as I mentioned, larger. It attracted people from all over Iceland. And for this reason, there was a rock at Thingfetla called the Law Rock. And this is where the law speaker would stand and he would speak to all the people, and it basically gave him a platform, a stage, in which to speak. Something that wouldn't have been necessary at the regional things because they would have been smaller and you would have been more in earshot of everyone. You wouldn't need to stand high above. The law speaker's job, by the way, so this was a very prestigious position, and the law speaker's job was to recite one-third of the laws every year, for three years. So they served three-year terms. And in this way, everyone would familiarize themselves with all of the laws by the time the three-year term was up. And it was just a way to familiarize people with the laws, basically. And I'm going to get into writing a little bit later. That's another topic I'm going to talk about today. But yeah, the Vikings had basically an oral culture, and this was a better, more practical way to, to go over the laws every year. Apart from the Law Rock, there was also something called the Logretta, and this was an area for the council circle of judges. So a lot of these thing sites are kind of circular in nature, and this is done probably for two purposes. One, it's practical. Everybody can see each other if you're sitting in a circle. Also, it, it doesn't give anybody a sense of higher importance. So it's almost similar to comparing a rectangular table with a round table. So... What the, the Vikings liked to do is they would sit in a circle. The judges in Iceland, it would be 36 chieftains or prominent people that would sit in a circle. And each of these people would have two advisors, one who sat in front of them and one who sat behind them. And in this large circle, the, the chieftains or the prominent people could either lean forward or backwards and, and get advice from their advisors. And this is what was called the, the Lagreta. Um, there was also... Obviously a large area at Thingfetler for people to spread out, to set up temporary booths, to live, to live temporarily anyways, and also uh, to provide space for an audience when there were announcements. Interestingly enough as well, uh, the fault chasm, Almanya, provided sort of a, a nice backdrop which could almost amplify sound. So it's believed that the law rock was, as I mentioned, kind of like a stage, and then you'd have this fault chasm in the background that was projecting law speaker's voice forward. So the whole area kind of acted like a theatrical stage. So let's get into the laws. I'm not going to get into all of the laws, but I'll just touch on a few that I deem important for, for the purposes of this podcast and for my novel. Uh, the first thing is, of course, the Vikings had laws. I've talked in the past about how murdering was frowned upon, so you could be convicted of murder, uh, definitely, in the Viking Age. There was also a law that, that related to Thingfetler itself. So originally a man named Thorir was the owner of the land 
and he was actually convicted of murder, and thus he lost the rights to his land, and then this land became the site for the all thing. So that's one example of law being put into use. We have examples of many rune stones that tell us about inheritance rights. So we definitely know that laws existed. And in my novel, of course, my main character is faced with outlawry as well. So in Iceland, you could be outlawed. And it definitely was not as cool as it sounds because basically if you were outlawed it means you were literally outside of the law and anybody could kill you with impunity and you had no rights. So it didn't mean that everybody would attack you on site because if you were to attack somebody you would also be risking your own health and well-being but you did have to be on alert at all times. It would probably be mentally draining if not also physically draining having to continually perhaps move locations to stay one step ahead of, of people who might be pursuing you. So if you were outlawed in Iceland, you would basically have to leave Iceland and, and never return. There was something called lesser outlawry as well, and this was this meant that you would be outlawed, but only for a period of three years. So um, after three years, you could return, and then you would no longer be an outlaw. So it was a punishment, but it was less severe. And these were some of the things that would have been discussed at various things and at the all thing as well. I want to talk about language now and writing. So the Vikings spoke a language we call today Old Norse, but they of course did not call it that. That would have been a bit weird. Uh, they called it the Danish tongue. So for them, they were speaking Danish. And of course, they had a writing script as well. So they had an alphabet and they used runes. So they had runic characters and a runic alphabet. What's interesting about their alphabet is that it was meant to be carved. So there was a, a carved nature to it. It was meant to be carved in wood, it was meant to be carved in metal, in stone, so it was a little bit different than the Latin alphabet that more people in Western culture are, are familiar with. So if you think of a Latinized S, for example, it's got all these curves to it. The S in the runic alphabet looks more like a lightning bolt, so obviously if, if there were curved letters it would be difficult to carve that into wood or stone, but a lightning bolt you can do with more straight lines. So there's this very yeah straight lined nature to all of the runic letters. Today historians and archaeologists uh, do try to decipher the uh, the runes and at one point I, I even thought about becoming a runologist but I didn't want to go crazy because it is quite difficult. For one the Vikings didn't really have a standardized direction of writing so sometimes they would write left to right, sometimes they would write right to left, uh, sometimes it would go up and down, sometimes it would even flip on itself in the same sentence and, and suddenly be completely upside down. A lot of uh, rudologists call this writing system the way the, the an ox plows, basically, so up and down and, <laughs> and around. around. It, it's, it's crazy, too, because you can... So you never know which direction to start from when you start to interpret the, the runes, and sometimes you can get a satisfactory explanation whether you read it forwards or backwards, and you don't know which is forwards or backwards, so it could mean two different things. Another thing that makes it tricky, apart from the fact, of course, that we're trying to translate a dead language, is that carving into stone, wood, metal even, of course it's laborious, it takes time, it's not something you really want to do. So the runic scripts that we, we find tend to be short, they're not, they're not long sentences, and the Vikings also used shortcuts, so sometimes you could kind of combine two letters into one. If you think of, uh, again, the Latin alphabet, maybe the you write the letter D 
Okay, so you've got the stick, the stem, and you've got that little circle bit to make a D. If the next letter you're writing is a B, you might just add the little bubble part to the other side of the stick. So together, this would not look like any letter from the alphabet, but uh, to a Viking, they would be reading it as the letter D and then the letter B, just because they wouldn't want to carve so much. Another trick that they used is if one word ended with the same letter that the next word began with, they would just write the letter once. Typically, they didn't even put spaces between their, their words. So, yeah, it makes it very difficult to, to translate. And uh, this is perhaps one of the reasons the Vikings had a more oral culture. But, of course, they did write as well, and they did so using runes. Okay, so the last thing I want to talk about is a board game that the Vikings played called Nafta. And in case you're wondering, it's spelled exactly how it sounds. And the joke in archaeology and academia is that so far, nobody's ever found one of these board games in a Viking context that included an instruction book. So nobody knows the exact rules of how the game was played, but a lot can be interpreted from just the way the game board looks even. So how it looks like is it's square, and it looks very much like a checkers board or a chess board with many squares within. Unlike a checkers or a chess game, though, you don't have two sides opposing each other on opposite ends of the board. So you do have two sides. You have what's been called the attackers and the defenders, but the defenders start in the middle and the attackers start all around. And the attackers heavily outnumber the defenders. So you have all of these attacking pieces surrounding the defending pieces in the middle. The defenders also have a king piece, which is very similar to, I suppose, a, a chess king. And the object of the game is generally believed to have been get your king to one of the safety corners of the board. So if you're one of the defenders, you're using your men to protect your king and get him to safety. If you're on the attacking side, your job is, of course, to kill the king. It's believed that you could kill another piece by surrounding it on two sides. And it's also believed that all of the pieces moved very similar to a rook in chess. So you could move up and down, you could move side to side, and you could slide your piece as short of a distance or as long of a distance as you wanted, as long as it stayed linear. So, yeah, if you could if you could surround another your opponent's piece with one piece on one side and one piece on the other side, then the, the piece in the middle would be killed. The king, it's believed, was a bit trickier to kill. You had to get him on all four sides. And although you could get him on just three sides if he happened to be on the border of the board, for example. So... These are sort of the general rules, the, the general consensus on, on how the game was played. I've played it myself, doing a little bit, I guess you could say, experimental archaeology. And when I played as the defenders, what I found was that it was actually too easy. So the king piece is believed also to, to have been able to have moved like a rook, so it could go straight uh, left, right, or up and down. But I found it too easy. My strategy always when I was the defenders was I didn't even really care about my defenders, I just raced my king as quickly as possible to one of the corners, and because the king was so fast and so powerful, because you needed four other players to, to kill him, nobody could really touch him. You could maybe surround him with one or two players, but hardly ever you could get him surrounded by three, and, and certainly not four. So it seemed unfair to me that the king was so powerful. So what I changed in my own rules was th that the king could only move one step at a time, one square at a time, very much like a, a king in, in chess. I suppose the other rule you could you could do is you could make the king you could make it that you could kill the king with just two attackers instead of four. But yeah, I found it 
I found it way too easy if you had to kill him with four, and he could move like a rook in chess. So I do not follow that interpretation, but as I said, nobody's ever found a rule book, so it's all left for interpretation. It's interesting, though, to note when the Vikings would have played this game and, and where as well. So much like all entertainment in, in the Viking Age, so I talked about sagas in a previous episode. Sagas were something you could tell to your household, to your friends at a gathering. Of course, it would pass the time, it would be entertaining, but it was also informative. You would also learn about your ancestors. In the case of the Vinland sagas, you would also learn about locations and how to get there and what to expect when when you find these places. Very similar with, with the board games as well, or in my novel I have some, some children playing sword fighting. Of course it was fun, but there was always a, uh, a more important motive to, to playing these games. So in the example of sword fighting, of course you were, pre- you were preparing for one day actually holding a real sword and, and being in a real battle. So it was kind of grooming you for that. With Nafdal, it was entertaining, but of course it also instilled battle strategy and tactics into your mind. And it would be played, yeah, during the winter, during the long winters in in the Scandinavian countries. You did need to pass the time. But it would also be played probably, um, probably if you were an attacking, invading party somewhere and you were setting up a temporary base camp, you would also need to pass the time sometimes. So, yeah. You wouldn't really want to work the land or anything if you were just in a temporary area on the verge of of attacking an enemy. So you'd bring Naftal with you and and maybe play a few games of that. But as I said, it was it was both meant for entertainment, but also practical purposes as well. You were learning strategy and honing your your mind. So I think this will wrap up season one. As I've been saying all along, if you're a fan, if you're an agent, if you're a publisher, please do get in touch. You can reach me at Viking Story FAQ at Outlook.com. That's Viking Story FAQ. And yeah, I'd love to hear from you. And of course, please stay subscribed to this podcast for more info on Season 2. It will be coming, and you'll hear all the latest information right here. So yeah, please do stay in touch. Thanks once again for listening. Q Thor's Thunder.